precious Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that we have the privilege to be in your house of worship. Thank you for the Spirit of God that is promised to be among us. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us today in our studies. May we learn something that will help us in our walk with Jesus. Help us, dear Lord, to draw closer to you as each day goes by. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. What a blessing. I want to share with you a letter that was written by uh, Sister White to one of her friends. She says, How we pant and are weary and agonized in carrying ourselves and our burdens. When we come to Jesus, feeling unable to bear these burdens one instant longer and lay them upon the burden bearer, rest and peace will come. We do not go stumbling along our heavy loads, making ourselves miserable every day because we do not take to heart the gracious promises of God. He will accept us, all unworthy, through Jesus Christ. Never let us lose sight of the promise that Jesus loves us. His grace is waiting our demand upon his love. Jesus' love does not come to us in some wonderful way. This wonderful manner of his love was already evidenced at his crucifixion. The light of his love is reflected in bright beams from the cross of Calvary. Now it remains for us to accept that love and to take the promises of God to ourselves. Just repose in Jesus. Rest in him as a tired child rests in the arms of his mother. The Lord pities you. He loves you. The Lord's arms are beneath you. You have not reined yourself up to feel and to hear, but wounded and bruised, just repose. Trust in God. A compassionate hand is stretched out to bind up your wounds. He will be more precious to your soul than the choicest friend, and all that can be desired is not comparable. Only believe him. Only trust him. Signed, your friend in affliction, one who knows. Searching for peace for decades. He tried alcohol, then narcotics, but nothing filled the longing of his soul. Deciding to come clean, Ahmad started attending alcohol, Holics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, groups in his home country located in the Middle East. Benefiting from the meetings, Ahmad wanted to help others overcome their addictions, so he became a certified AANA speaker. He also obtained a license from the government, allowing him to hold AA and NA meetings in his home. 
Reading was something Ahmad enjoyed, and one day he found a book containing several Bible quotations. He had never read such a book, and peace flooded his soul as he read it. Telling his friends about the book, Ahmad exclaimed, This is another idea about life, and I love it. I feel peace when I read it. Soon afterward, a friend quietly gave Ahmad a Bible. As he read the sacred book, he felt even more peace and comfort. When he asked his friend some questions, the friend took him to a home where a small group of Christians were meeting. In my country, says Ahmad, when the government gets any little news that you've changed your religion or are even interested in changing, they will kill you. People just disappear. But when I found the book, the Bible, I found Jesus and light. Everything changed, and I wanted to introduce this to others. Ahmad continued leading out in AA and in a meetings in his home. Slowly, he began introducing Christ to the groups, but not directly by name. There is a God who loves us, Ahmad told them, a God who is Father, who sent his Son to us. But some attendees weren't pleased. Be careful of what you say, Ahmad's friends warned him. They record everything, and they'll make problems for you. Ahmad was more careful, but I couldn't just sit, he confessed. In AA, I learned that you should pass the message to others. And I learned from the Bible that if you went, want to keep the hope you have, you must pass it on. Ahmad became involved with a network that secretly downloaded Christian sermons, then copied them and made them little packs that included a small Bible, sermons about the Bible, and a Bible course on a CD. These illegal packs were quietly distributed throughout the country. I found this church. About this time, Ahmad started hearing there uh, from Hamid, a friend who had left their country and was now in Austria. I found this church that says the same thing as you about alcohol and drugs, Hamad said excitedly. They're friendly, and they've accepted me. They let me help and be a part of them. Hamad had found a Seventh-day Adventist church. When you escape your country in the situation that we're facing, Ahmad explains, you're worried that no one will accept you. But these people accepted him and were very friendly. And they helped him to have a better relationship with God. For more than a year, Hamid communicated with Ahmad, telling him about the wonderful spiritual experiences he found in the Adventist church. Ahmad continued to secretly meet with the underground Christian church in his home country. One day, however, one of his Christian friends disappeared. Ahmad soon heard that the government had learned of his friend's conversion and that he and his wife were in grave danger. Although his wife was in her ninth month 
of pregnancy, Ahmad realized that their only safety was to flee. Quickly and quietly, the couple left their home and secretly traveled to another country. From there, they found their way to Austria and their friend, Hamid. The first day that they were in the country, Hamid took them to the Adventist church. You will find peace here, he told the weary couple. And I found more than peace. I found peace and love, says Ahmed. It was the first time that I experienced someone waiting to help you for nothing in return. They love you because of the love of Jesus. I didn't find this love in my own family because of their religion. My parents couldn't be kind to me. In their religious views, God isn't kind. But here, I felt this message in my heart. You are a refugee of love. Ahmad continues to spread the good news of what he has learned and has already brought many more refugees to the church. And Austria, its capital city is Vienna, and that is now where Ahmad has found peace. It's a new quarter. And uh, the book of Job. Does everyone have a quarterly for this quarter? All right, good. How many of you, when you read a book, start with the last chapter? Nobody? I know my husband does. Drives me crazy. (laughs) He'll pick up the book and read like two pages in the front and two pages in the middle, and then he'll read the last chapter so you know how it ends. Well, that's how we're going to study the book of Job this quarter. We're starting with the end of the book (laughs) and then going to the beginning. I'm the opposite. I will resist the urge to look ahead at all and keep myself in suspense through the entire book until I finally get to the last chapter. That's <laughs> Otherwise, I feel like I failed something you know, if I sit <laughs> in the last chapter first. But I don't think we failed, Joe, because hopefully we've all read the whole book already and this is just a review. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to our main chapter, and that is the last chapter of Job. Who knows what chapter that is? Job 42, that's correct. Let's turn to Job 42. And we are going to start with one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And that's verse 10. Would someone like to read Job 42, 10? And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friend. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I was so excited when I saw that verse was in this lesson. (laughs) It's kind of one of those strange verses. Why would that be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible? Well, I have to tell you the story behind it. When I was uh, 17, I went on my very first canvassing program, going door-to-door selling books. And of course, we weren't just selling books to make money. We were selling books because we wanted to get the gospel into the homes. But at the same time, I was also earning money for college. I was uh, finishing my last year of high school, and, uh, or I should say getting ready to start my last year of high school. 
and I knew that college was just around the corner. And so every book that I sold that summer and the following summer was going straight toward my college education. So, you know, when you're going door to door, you can get pretty selfish with God sometimes. And so every, between every door, I would pray something like this, God, give me more books at the next house. <laughs> and uh, this one particular day, I think my prayers were extremely selfish because I had prayed for myself the entire day. I hadn't even stopped to think about the others on my team. I had just been praying for myself between every single door. Forgot about the people behind the doors. Forgot about everybody else. All I could think about was, I've got to get these books out, and they're getting damaged in my bag. It was extremely hot. It was like 100 degrees. And, uh, you know, when you're carrying books in your arm, they get wet <laughs> if you don't get them out quickly. And, of course, I carried five books in my arm to every door, and I had another 10 books in my bag. And uh, so the ones in my arm were the most important to me to get rid of quickly before they turned soggy and I had to turn them in as damaged books and then they got docked from my scholarship. And uh, so anyway, this afternoon, it was about probably four or five in the afternoon and I had only gotten out two books all day or maybe three. For me, that was a, a slow day, even for me. I was never a high seller. Uh, a good day for me was if I got 10 books. But three was looking a little scary when you look at there's only a couple hours left. And uh, as I was walking down the road, I started crying out to God. God, what's wrong? Like, seriously, you know, I've never gone all the way till 5 o'clock with less than, you know, at least five books. You know, what's going on? And all of a sudden, this verse came into my head. And, of course, I had it memorized uh, from the King James Version, which says, The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. But it's basically the same idea. And God started talking to me. Christina, you've been really selfish today. And you have just been praying for yourself. You forgot about the people that you're ministering to, but you've especially forgotten about your friends. And uh, around that time, my leader stopped to check on me as I was thinking about this. And he says to me, pray for Tammy. She's only gotten one book out today. And that kind of hit me, you know. I haven't prayed for Tammy all day. And here I've been working, you know, on the same streets as her or in the same area, seeing her in the van, eating lunch with her. And I never prayed for Tammy. And then I started thinking about some of the other people on my team. Well, I hadn't prayed for any of them. I hadn't even thought to pray for my leader to have wisdom on where to put me on the next street. And so I said, God, I am sorry, but I'm not going to pray for myself anymore the rest of the day. And so between every door, I started praying for my friends. And you know, by the end of the day, the Lord gave me twice as many books as I'd had before. <laughs> That uh, experience has never left me. And whenever I start complaining to God about how my life is going or why he's not answering my prayers, I remember this verse. When was the last time I prayed for my friends? Yes. I had the same prayer. I was used to when I come over and put on a dollar prayer. That's when a dollar prayer machine was shared in church. And I kneeled up here at the altar every day and I'd pray for the church 
I pray for my biological family. And the Lord spoke to me, listen to your prayers. It's selfish. And he reminded me that he had others in this community. And he took me in vision over to an area here that uh, was pretty run down. You could pass there and you see children in the summertime, the doors open, running around half naked. He told me, spoke to me about how much he loved those. That changed my prayer life, just like it did yours. I've been praying, when I pray now for my biological family, my church family, I pray for my community, and I've mm -hmm. named them. But it made a difference in my life, too. It does. It really does. And it's incredible how, you know, honestly, I don't ever remember memorizing that verse. I'm quite sure I did not memorize it on purpose uh, when I was young. Um, but God brought that back to mind when I needed it most. And uh, I've never forgotten it since. If I was to divide our lesson into three parts, I don't think. I'm tired. You'll have to forgive me, but two comes before three. All right. I would, uh, I think the board is under the speaker. Our lesson is really about restoration. But uh, some of it is a little different than we would expect restoration to be. So we have restorative happiness, we have restorative pain, hopefully that's readable, we have restorative completeness. That's really the best way I could summarize this lesson into three sections. So let's look at restorative happiness. We've read verse 10 now. That's kind of the crux of the restorative happiness, right? Because we have Job. He's gone through all this terrible trauma, right? I mean, he's lost his whole family. He's lost all his servants except three or four. Uh, he's lost all of his cattle. He's lost all his kids. He's lost houses, uh, you know, he's basically lost everything except his wife and the house he's living in. And uh, we find through his whole experience, you know, he goes through that earth-shattering time with God, you know, the trial of his faith, and then he almost loses himself, right, with uh, a physical illness that nearly kills him. And uh, through this all, he remains strong to the Lord. And then we see, for Job, restorative happiness, right? He, God gives him, what does it say? Twice as much as he had before. Let's read the rest of the verses. Um, we read verse 10. So let's read uh, verses 11 through 17. And uh, maybe break it up. So whoever wants to read, read two verses. How does that sound? So someone read 11 and 12. Then there came, then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in the house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an errand of gold. 
So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. All right, someone else read 13 and, well, 13 through 15. How's that? He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first, Jemima, and the name of the second, Kiza, and the name of the third, Karen. If you know Karen and Orion, Karen was named after Job's daughter. <laughs> and in all the land where no women found were no women found so far as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Alright, and someone read 16 and 17. Mike, do you want to read verses 16 and 17? After this lived Job in 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I mean, uh, you've got uh, complete restorative happiness there and a long life and family and possessions and everything else. Does it always work that way? Do you think Job was truly happy? That's a good... Did he have memories? That's a good question. Would you have memories, Jim? Most definitely. <laughs> Even if you did have ten children again, they wouldn't be the same. They wouldn't be the same children you lost, right? These were grown children that he lost. He had to have memories of those. Yeah. And no doubt raising children also. I know uh, my grandparents um, had, uh, they lost three children, and two of them were miscarriages, but one of them lived to be almost a year old. And to the day of my grandfather's death, he always talked about that little girl that they lost. You know, and they only, he only had the, her for less than a year. Could you imagine Job, you know, 10 children who lived to full adulthood before he lost them? Of course he had memories. Um, but we often overlook that in the story, don't we? And also there's another thing that's happened in Job's story, right? In verse 17, Job... Well, in verse 17, Job died, right? Yeah. So it, it wasn't a full happily ever after, was it? I mean, he still got old and died. <laughs> um, and then what were you saying about friends? He gets well, he gets his stuff back, and here comes... All of his friends. <laughs> yeah, but don't you think it's amazing that they weren't borrowing, they were bringing him something? <laughs> That's true. You know, most friends will forsake you and say, good luck, have a nice life. <laughs> At least they were somewhat kind. But where were they when he was sick? That's what I want to know. <laughs> he didn't have very many come when he was sick, and the ones who did weren't much help. <laughs> I, wonder, I wondered about that. His wife's the only one that's mentioned here in sickness. Yeah, well, obviously she was still with him. But she almost left him, didn't she? I mean, she's the one who told him to curse God and die. I imagine she had to rebuild a little bit of trust after Job started feeling better. I don't know. Maybe that was mercy on her part. You know, to sit and watch your loved one deteriorate. It's true. 
I'm sure that was very hard on her. But you don't ask him to curse God. That's right. <laughs> well, another thing, too. <clears throat> they were kind of like establishing the Bible at that point. All these stories. They were e- the establishers of it. Mm. And it's like they didn't, I don't know, do they have anything to pull from? You know, it's like, we have something to pull. Okay, I feel like Job, I'm going to have faith because, you know, look, you know, do they have anything to pull from? You know, so it's like, they didn't have the whole Bible to pull from, that's for sure. They only had from creation until them, right? Which wasn't very much, you know. Um, in chronological order, uh, Job probably lived shortly after the time of Abraham or possibly even during. Um, so they didn't have very much, you know. Basically, the creation story and, you know, the flood and a couple things in between. That's about it. I mean, they had the prophet Enoch, but that's about all they had, you know. Um, so you're right. They had a lot less to pull from. Although, I often wonder how much they had to pull from that never got written, you know. Uh, that was passed down verbally from generation. We don't know. But they had angels visiting among them. True. If Job lived after the flood, I don't know how many angels visited, but obviously angels visited Abraham, so. And, and with Job's lifespan, it equals what Abraham was doing. Right. So it's very possible that he had some one-on-one communion with God. I mean, God spoke to Abraham. It's possible that God, well, obviously we know God spoke to Job uh, because we have several chapters in the book of Job that is God speaking to Job. So they had, they had more than we give them credit for. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But uh, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't. Obviously they had enough that God held his friends accountable. <laughs> because God told them, if, if Job doesn't pray for you, you're going to die. <laughs> but you know, oftentimes in uh, Christianity, you see this prosperity gospel. I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, we get stuff in the mail. <laughs> We've never signed up for it. Uh, you know, it just says, you know, put in, uh, mail us some money to God and it'll be your seed money. And if you do this, we guarantee that God will bless you and make you rich and give you what you've been asking for. And, uh, you know, they have all these stories about people who have, you know, uh, prayed for children for years and, you know, put in their seed money and all of a sudden got pregnant or, uh, you know, were in poverty and all this debt and they put in their seed money and all of a sudden they inherited a whole bunch of wealth and, and they put these testimonies in their letters that they send out. And it's very real. I mean, we chuckle because we know, but it's very real in the world today. And it's something that Christians think about all the time. Christina, I was just thinking, they, they, they're telling you that God will prove he loves you if you send in your seed. God proved he loved me 2,000 years ago at Calvary. That's right. That's right. God is not asking us to put in seed money. He gives us, He asks us to give free will offerings to his work, but that's not seed money. That's no uh, guarantee that we're going to be prosperous. Well, Malachi 3 says, I will pour you, I will... Open the windows of heaven? 
but that's not seed money. Sometimes you take it for you can take it too far. Yes, yes. That is true. That if we faithfully pay our tithe and faithfully give our offerings, God has promised that He will provide. But do we equate blessings and happiness with money? Right. <laughs> and do we do we equate blessings and happiness with good health? Do we equate blessings and happiness with having a big family? What what is our source of happiness? God above. And that brings us to our section two, restorative pain, right? Because happiness isn't always prosperity. Jesus uh, lived on this earth in poverty, in pain, in trials, but he was happy. And of course, if we look at our lesson, to Monday's lesson, how many unhappy endings do they have listed there? I mean, just look at them. And you probably know the stories for each one. You know, you've got Abel, who was what? Abel was murdered by his brethren, by his brother, because he did what was right. Because he stood firm for God. Uriah was killed in battle. Uh, Eli fell over backwards, broke his neck. You know, we can go on. And of course, I actually like to look at John the Baptist. So let's turn to Matthew chapter, well, it says 14, but I want to look at Matthew chapter 11 first. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. So I think John the Baptist's experience really hits home. I mean, you have, you have an amazing preacher and evangelist who's been preparing the way for Jesus himself. I mean, what greater honor. And he did his job well. The Bible never records him making mistakes or going against what God asked him to do. He performed faithfully. But what happened? We find in chapter 11, he's in jail. Thrown in prison. It doesn't sound like prosperity gospel to me, does it? I mean, of all people to be put in jail, when Jesus was alive and he was performing all these miracles, I mean, he was healing the sick, he was raising the dead, he was uh, making miracles of loaves and fishes. Do you think Jesus could have worked a miracle and got John the Baptist out of jail? Of course he could have, but why didn't he? And that's where it really puts the, the crux in our whole idea of this, you know, if you do right, God's going to bless you. Um, and if you're sick, therefore you're cursed by God. And that, of course, was a popular belief even in the time of the Jews. You find people who came to Jesus and they said, you know, who was the sinner? Why is, he, why is this man blind? You know, go ahead. I've, I've read in Ellen Watts' writings one time, and it really hit home. That if Satan can't get to you and keep you from, you know, growing in Christ and, be, you know, reading your word and all this, he can't get to you and bring you back the other direction, then he will uh, bring sickness on you and afflict you that way to try to bring you down. And I thought, hmm, 
you know, that's interesting. And also I've read, too, that if we're not following the commandments of God, Ellen White says that, he, that God will allow sickness to come on us to bring us back to where we need to be. Yes. So, you know, two different... But we can't say that blanket statement, all sickness is because we're sinners. No, but that's interesting. It's like two different sides there. Because you have even uh, Ellen White's example herself was afflicted by sickness so many times, not because she was disobedient. Uh, God actually told her that he would allow sickness to come upon her uh, as a way to let, her, let everyone else know that it was not her power that was giving that was making her this way and this effective, but that it was God working through her. Oh, well, I've read too where um, Satan, like even with her baby, you know, it just starts screaming and crying, and uh, Ellen White realized at that point that Satan had like um, revealed itself to the baby. It was like the baby was demon possessed. It, well, it's like the baby saw something that like freaked it out, mm -hmm. and it saw something that she didn't see. And she started praying over the baby, and then he calmed down. But yeah, that Satan was afflicting, literally, visually afflicting. But it wasn't because the baby was a sinner. No. <laughs> and it wasn't because Ellen White had rejected God. <laughs> so let's look at John the Baptist. Do you want to say something? Yes, I was just thinking. I, I believe that Job and John uh, the, the, the Baptist, I believe that uh, they went through some of the same experiences. I believe that what hurt Job the most was not the pain he's going through, but why is this happening to me? And I, th I think that uh, John the Baptist experienced the same thing. And John the Baptist, while he was sitting there in prison, actually had his doubts. I mean, what human being wouldn't? You know, it wasn't that John had rejected Christ, but Satan was there, you know, to put in those doubts. Is, is this guy really the Messiah? Wasn't he getting you out of jail? You know. Christina, that's something that happens to all of us. We all reach places where we think, why is this happening to me? What did I do that caused this to happen? That's right. Well, you know, isn't it true that they said, you know, how we all admired Mother Teresa, but they say she had her doubts, you know? They say she was one of the saddest people on earth. They, they read her diaries after she died, and they're just full of self-remorse and guilt, and uh, she was not happy. But yet, I mean, her of all people, you know, did so much for others. She was working for salvation. That's correct. But we forget the Jewish customs that if Jesus didn't prevent it, he caused it. right but but there is reasons why he allows things too at the same time yes yes yeah. there's definitely reasons he allows it but uh as we're looking at the the story of john the baptist we find that john in verse two he sends his disciples to ask jesus are you the christ or are we supposed to look for someone else and jesus didn't rebuke john for his doubts he didn't give him any harsh treatment. He didn't say, um, you know, come on, have you gone back on what you've been preaching all this time? You know, I mean, of course I'm the Messiah. He didn't say anything. He said, just watch. And as he spent the day teaching and healing people and showing compassion and doing the works of the Messiah, at the end of the day, he says, 
go encourage John the Baptist and tell him what you've seen. And he sent a message of hope to John the Baptist there in jail. Not rebuke, but hope. Is there a message for us, Claire? What do you think? <laughs> it's not what we say. It's what we do. <laughs> That's right. And of course, we know the unhappy ending of John the Baptist in Matthew 14 was that he was killed. But does that mean that all these people were, you know, God was punishing them for their sins? Is that what these endings are? No. God has another reason for pain, and that is what I've got written there. It's for our restoration or the restoration of those around us. Yes. What about Stephen? Right. Was his death without cause? He was doing the work of God when he was killed. How did we get most of the books of the New Testament? Was because of his death. (laughs) God used the death of the stoning of Stephen to convert Paul. I believe that uh, Paul became the great disciple that he was because of the death of... Because of Stephen, yes. So sometimes it's not for our own salvation that God gives us to us. Sometimes it's for the salvation of those around us. And that is even harder for us to see because we may not see it. Stephen didn't see it. I mean, he saw Paul as the murderer who was holding the coats of everybody, right? But uh, imagine him in heaven meeting Paul face to face. And Paul telling him, it was because of you that I became a follower of Jesus. I don't think that a lot of us are going to have some of those kind of experiences when we get to heaven. We touched lives and we didn't know it. And we didn't know it. Yeah, I can't wait to get to heaven. (laughs) There's so many people that I met canvassing that I've always wondered what happened to them. And I can't wait to see them in heaven. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that I haven't met that I'll be able to meet in heaven too. We have a few more minutes before I move on to number three. If you don't mind, I'd like to share with you a little bit more of my own experience. Um, And I may have shared this before a few years ago. But uh, as I was reading the story of Job... There's so much of it that I can relate to. And uh, in sharing this, I pray that it's an encouragement to you because I know each of us suffer in different ways. It's not all the same. But we each suffer in different ways. And uh, I just really hope that what I have learned through my experiences can be a blessing to somebody. But uh, I think I've probably shared a number of times that I was 17 when I devoted my life to full-time ministry work for God. And uh, when I was 19, I had finished two two summers of canvassing, and I was in my first year of college, uh, taking a degree in personal ministries, planning to be a Bible worker and evangelist for the rest of my life. I was hit, I had only been in school four weeks, when I was hit with something I had never experienced in my entire life. I'd always dealt with pain all my life. I've had an autoimmune disease since I can remember. Uh, My earliest symptoms I remember at three years old. Uh, In the past year or so, we've 
kind of traced it back to possibly um, a reaction to a vaccination that almost killed me when I was a baby as the cause of what triggered everything. But uh, I woke up one morning, just all of a sudden, in so much pain that I could hardly move. I went from, you know, dealing with a little bit of neck and back pain with flare-ups every now and then to all of a sudden this strong pain that was so bad that it wouldn't go away. And uh, at first it was just my neck and shoulders. And uh, within 24 hours, it had moved down to my entire spine. And within less than a week, I could barely walk. I could no longer sit in a chair. I could no longer canvas. And uh, I basically couldn't even get anywhere without someone on either side of me. And uh, I was actually in an intensive class that week where we were having classes eight hours a day. And uh, it was about six hours away from school, so I was only in a little suitcase. I didn't have anything even that I brought with me to college. And uh, I couldn't understand what was going on. So my first thought was, well, let me get to a chiropractor because every now and then during my teen years, they would help uh, with my neck problems and see if maybe that would help. I was very, very optimistic. And uh, so as soon as we got back to school at the end of that week, I spent that whole week laying on the floor on an air mattress uh, during class because I could not sit in a chair. Uh, we got back to school. I booked a, uh, with a chiropractor down there in Oklahoma. And uh, I went to the chiropractor and he's like, there's nothing I can do for you. He says, the, the adjustments that you've had in the past helped, but what you're dealing with now is severe muscle uh, swelling and spasms, and there's nothing I can do for you. And uh, so I went back to school and just was totally distraught. Uh, within another month, I couldn't even sleep in a bed anymore, and so I had to move into the living room in the easy chair uh, to sleep in the dorm. And uh, just, I cannot tell you the wrestling and anguish that I went through during that time. Wrestling with God all night long when I couldn't sleep. Just asking God, why? Why would you do something like this when I dedicated my life to working for you? Uh, a couple weeks later, it was our first canvassing program, and I couldn't canvass. And so I went to my instructor and I told him, I said, you know, I know this canvassing program is required for school. I realize my school bill will probably go up exponentially if I can't do it, but I have no choice. I cannot go door to door. I can't even carry a couple books to the door. And he says, well, I've already been thinking about it and I have this idea. If you can cook for the canvassing program, then I will write it off as if you canvassed and uh, you won't have to pay any extra. So I put my air mattress in the kitchen, and that's where I slept. And uh, I cooked for about 18 to 20 students, every canvassing program, fixing their breakfast and their sack lunches every morning, and uh, resting when I could on my air mattress. And this continued throughout the school year. Uh, and there would be days I was feeling better and then I'd be worse again. And I would sit in class in an air mattress on the floor 
uh, with my laptop propped against my legs trying to take notes during school or reading other people's notes or listening to other people study because my brain got so foggy I couldn't concentrate. And uh, it got to the point where um, I was afraid that they would kick me out of school because of my uh, inability to concentrate and read and memorize. I had to rely entirely on what I heard because I couldn't read anything. And uh, so I would listen to the other students studying out loud with each other in study groups. And I would just listen in the corner from my easy chair and try to gather whatever I could. Um, and finally, after several months, I met a doctor, an uh, Adventist doctor, who was somewhat familiar with autoimmune diseases. And uh, I explained to him what had been going on for the last six months. And uh, he says, uh, I'm really sorry, but I have to tell you this. He says, you will never improve. He says, what you have will never get better. He says, you can expect to go downhill from here. And that was like a death sentence to someone in their first, who just finished their first year of college. And I remember the agony I was going through. I mean, that was the first time in my life I remember being suicidal. And I really didn't know what my life had in store. And I just, God, don't you remember that I dedicated my life to full-time service for you? Why would you let this happen? Why would you do this to me? And uh, I was uh, at another canvassing program again uh, as the cook while everybody else did my favorite thing going door to door. And I was stuck looking at these four walls of this kitchen all day long and just waiting for them to get back and tell me their stories. And uh, I began to wonder, God, does anyone really even miss me? Like, if I was gone, would anyone miss me? And uh, that uh, evening... I was really struggling, and I went out and sat, uh, be, I hid behind some bushes behind the church so no one would find me, and uh, stayed there about, probably till about 2 o'clock in the morning went that night, uh, just wrestling with God and watching the cars go by, and I finally went back to my room where all the other girls were and crawled into bed and slept for the night. And the next morning, those thoughts were still going through my head. Would anyone miss me if I was gone? And I uh, sat up in bed, and the girls were talking. And all of a sudden, a girl looks over at me and says, Christina, you mean you've, you, you actually sleep in our room? I've never seen you before in here. I didn't even know you were staying with us. That was the last thing I needed to hear. <laughs> And I spent that day just, just sobbing in the kitchen. God, they wouldn't miss me. I now have proof. Why am I even here? And uh, that night I went back out and just wrestled with God till about 2 in the morning. And uh, I was sitting out this time instead of hiding in the bushes. I was out in the parking lot of the church where we were staying, just looking up at the stars. And... It was the first time in my life that I actually know for a fact that I heard God's voice speaking to me. 
And he said, this too shall pass. And I was shocked. It was like, it was the first time that I felt like God was trying to answer my prayer. And I was so overwhelmed. I'll never forget the day. It was uh, October 30, 2003. I was so overwhelmed with God's, just an assurance of God's love and a peace that I'd never felt before. And I didn't care if, you know, it would be 10 years or 20 years or how long it take, but I had the assurance that God had promised this too should pass. And so I locked myself in a little uh, room. It was my little hideaway in the church. I'd found this little tiny, it was their Bible correspondence closet is what it was. And uh, that's where I would go hide. And I started writing. And I want to share with you the poem that I wrote that evening, that in the middle of the night. It's called Reflections from Pain. Jesus, you are my only friend in every time of need. Sometimes I just can't understand where you are leading me. You know my heart's longing desire to always work for you. And you alone know just how much I long to co-porter too. I'm thankful for all the blessings that you have given me. A caring school, supportive friends, and wonderful training. I'm also thankful that I can cook instead of staying back. I still can help your co-porter work by giving them food to pack. You give me strength from day to day, more than most people guess. Without your help, I would not want to take a single breath. Attempting to describe the pain is very hard to do, sometimes bearable, sometimes intense, but I can never say it's through. The knife that pierces through my lungs with each attempt to breathe, The hammer banging on my head with a slow, steady beat. The pain that slowly radiates down my legs and arms. Hips that spasm and a back that aches while sitting does me harm. Noise is the toughest of them all. It's like a splitting mall. Shattering my nerves, making me tense, and pain just throbs with all. I don't like being off by myself, but sometimes I must flee. If the crowd is noisy, there's not much choice. Is too stressful, you see. In times like these, when I'm feeling alone, Jesus, you're there for me. I see your arms stretched open wide with a big, warm hug for me. So many times as I've walked alone, I know you're at my side. Your love for me is warm and strong, and with you I shall abide. I may count all my muscles, Each one shoots out more pain. Massage always gives some relief. Fomentations do the same. But finding someone to do it is not always easy. I feel so terrible even asking. Everyone is so busy. I can't even count how many times I've just wanted to die. But knowing you have walked this road makes me also want to try. When the pain is so sharp and intense that many girls would scream, I remember the agony you suffered when nailed to Calvary's tree. Your love for us was so great that you left all that was fair, came to live and suffer on this earth much more than we could bear. What do I have to complain about? 
Why do I cry and moan? Even when I can't get out of bed, I am never alone. When dark clouds of despair roll in, when tears are fast falling, you bring to mind scripture promise and give me songs to sing. When the sleepless night passes so slow and I gaze at the starry sky, your voice whispers, this too shall pass, and you give me wings to fly. Jesus, you are my only friend in every time of need. Although I just can't understand where you are leading me, I trust my life into your care and give my heart to you. You know what is the best for me, and you will see me through. If you had told me back then that uh, in 10 years uh, I would be married and getting ready to start a restaurant, (laughs) I would have told you you were crazy. (laughs) But God is amazing. Thank you for that beautiful testimony. But I was thinking about something else. That doctor, he might have been a Seventh-day Adventist, but he was not a Christian. (laughs) Well, I'm still friends with him. (laughs) And he's very happy to see that I have improved some. I mean, obviously, he was right in the fact that it will never leave. leave. Um, I still definitely very much deal with it. But God has helped me to work through it despite it. Something interesting you keep saying, this too shall pass. That was Katie's favorite saying. Really? Have you ever heard her? This too shall pass. That was Joan Randolph. Wow. Joan Randolph and they were very close friends. Wow. That was always Katie's thing. Well, our time is almost up, but I wanted to end with number three, restorative completeness. Because we know that even though God has happiness for here on this life, He does plan to give us a happily ever after. Let's turn in closing to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I love how he puts that. Our light affliction here on earth, which is but for a moment. It's because... We have eternity to look forward to and complete restoration. Let's turn to our closing hymn. 632 is our closing hymn.
Father in heaven, we thank you for this lesson study this morning. Oh, you're restored to power, and we just pray that you'll continue to bless us and keep us in your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.